Love Talk Radio. Welcome to AMOR Chat. My name is Linda Sissler. Uh, we're so happy to be on the air again. Last month we had a little bit of a glitch at uh, Blog Talk Radio had a uh, denial of service attack, which they hopefully have um, remedied and will not have a problem with that in the future. But it seems like we've been off the air for a long time, so we're really, really happy to be on the air tonight. Uh, joining me uh, as our guest is Carolyn Anderson, and we're going to be talking about Mastering Edges, which is going to be a great show. And as Carol- Carolyn mentioned before we went live on the air, it's, it's a big subject. <laughs> that we, We're probably only going to be scratching the tip of the iceberg here on this, but naturally um, as we get into this conversation, we, we probably will even identify more topics for a show that maybe we can bring Carolyn back for in, in the future. And we're just really excited to have Carolyn here and uh, to be talking to us about that. And also joining me are my co-hosts, Blanche McAllister-Harris and Barbara Coleman. So uh, we'll get to bringing them in in a second. I got a couple points that I wanted to bring up, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, wanted to mention that our next show in June, we're going to bring Michael Harding back on. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure why that happened, but... Um, anyway, we're going to bring Michael Harding uh, back on the show, and Michael will be um, talking to us a little bit more about paints, and uh, I'll be in a number of conversations between now and when the show airs with Michael and um, trying to figure out exactly what the top that topic is going to be, but that's our show in June. And then our show in July, I'm um, working with Jennifer McChristian and see if we can get Jennifer on then. Um, she was supposed to be on our show in um, April, I believe it was, but she had a scheduling conflict with us at the last minute, so um, I'll be talking with Jennifer to get her on as well. also wanted to mention for those of you that do our painting challenge, the new painting challenge is up, and we've actually tied it to this show. Um, it's about edges, and uh, there's four paintings that you need to paint, one that concentrates and helps you uh, get in your mind what hard edges are, and then one you paint another one that has soft edges, and then one that has a large number or a, a, as many lost and found edges as you can in the painting. And then the fourth painting, the requirement is that you have a hard edge, soft edges, and lost and found all in one painting. So it's kind of a way to imprint on your mind you know, how to create these different edges and give you a little bit of practice as well. And then you share all four of those paintings with us and talk about your findings and your experience in doing it. So... That uh, Ammo Painting Challenge group is over on Facebook. You're more than welcome to join us. You have to ask to join, and either uh, myself or Jesse will be glad to add you. And then there's a bunch of uh, information there, and it's it's a great little community. Everybody's very supportive over there, and um, we enjoy seeing everybody's work as well. So with that... um, that's, that's basically all the housekeeping I have to do this evening. So I'm going to bring in Blanche. Hey, Blanche, how you doing? Hey, Linda, I'm doing well. I'm uh, b- 
busy here doing lots of painting, and um, I just had a piece juried into the Wall Painters of America uh, salon show in Michigan this coming June, so I'm getting ready to ship that. And, oh, congratulations. Um, I, I understand. Thank you. I understand you've got some news, too, uh, with some of your paintings. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, it's a, a little contest that was done here in Middletown. It, but it's actually it's great because um, my work's going to end up being published in the public domain kind of thing. And it's going to be used as a um, painting that I did of an old opera house here in Middletown. It's a very old building, and they're trying to revitalize that building. And so um, there was a set of criteria that you had to paint for and, and to, and um, basically it was, I, I created the painting and called it um, Grounded in Our Past, Creating Our Future. So it kind of moves from the left-hand side of the painting from, you know, very um, ghostly-looking old buildings that are no longer there up to what the sword looks like today, the, the opera house looks like today, and um, goes from very subtle color to very vibrant color so that, you know, you could get the feeling of having a great future. And that's supposedly going to grace the cover of a CD of local what local musicians are pulling together. So, uh, yeah, so that was – thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, it was quite exciting. So <laughs> Yeah, that is. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So, But, yeah, and congratulations on your OPA show, too. That's, that's no small feat. That takes a lot of effort. <laughs> so congratulations. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks. And uh, Barbara, if I'm not mistaken, I think um, you got into that the show as well. Is that correct? Yes, it is. I just shipped my painting off today to that salon show, and um, it was one of those uh, frustrating UPS days <laughs> that I got that <laughs> shipped off to OPA, and then um, I'm participating in the weekend in the West up at Evergreen Fine Art, and uh, got the three paintings shipped off to that show as well today. So. With that done, I'm ready to just start painting, and I'm extremely <laughs> excited to talk with Carolyn uh, this evening and speak about Edges. I'm a real fan of her work, and, and uh, congratulations to you, too, Linda, on that award. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, um, it was fun. It was a fun little experiment to do. So, uh, But, yeah, just good news all around for us. That's pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> yeah. So, and, with that, um, I'm going to read a little bit about Carolyn, and then we'll bring Carolyn in to say hello. So Carolyn's a nationally recognized artist, an accomplished pastelist and oil painter. She was born and raised in the Chicago area and attended the Illinois School of, or, I'm sorry, Illinois State University. Um, she joined the VISTA program, Volunteers in Service to America, in the early 70s and was assigned to work on an Indian reservation in Montana. She eventually returned to Montana to live, and she's a master artist with the American Impressionist Society, a, mem a member of the Northwest Rendezvous, and participates in many of the nation's uh, largest shows, um, and has had her work featured in numerous publications, including Southwest Art, Art of the West, American Artist, The Big Sky Journal. And awards include the C.M. Russell Artist Choice, several NWR, which is the Northwest Rendezvous, Award of Excellence, two C.M. Russell Best of Shows, and several Master Awards of Excellence for um, the American Impressionist Society. Um, Carolyn teaches numerous painting workshops across the country. She's taught for the Fry Museum in Seattle, Walt Disney Imagineering, and the Scottsdale Artist School, and also the Fetchman Artist School. 
Her work is in a collection of many well-known artists and also in the collection of the Montana Historical Society. Welcome, Carolyn, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And with a, like Barbara said, we're very, very excited. And um, I want to jump right into our uh, conversation about edges if we can because we know we've got a lot of uh, things to cover. So I'm going to turn it over to Blanche and let Blanche uh, ask you the first question. Okay. Hey, Carolyn. Hi, Blanche. Um, this is a this is a hey. This is a big subject, so I thought I'll just jump <laughs> right in. <laughs> It'd probably be a good start um, to understand edges from some kind of foundation or beginning. Edges are probably the most challenging, and therefore we could probably say one of the most misunderstood tools in an artist's arsenal. Um, a lot of that has to do with the importance of understanding how we see. Can you talk about how we see and how that corresponds to how we should be ca- how we should capture it in our paintings? Big question. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, I want to say that no artist should be intimidated by edges. Painters have had a handle on dealing with edges since at least the 1500s. We've got a long history here of edge painting. Exploring the technical aspect of painting edges is really available to anyone who has access to images from any of the artists we consider masters. The one advantage we have today, however, is the ability to probably better understand how our vision system works and how how we see. So really, edges is all about seeing. I don't think a a lot of artists understand how important that is. And a lot of times when people say they, they don't, they don't see the edge, well, that's true. They just don't see it. So it's it's part of the whole vision process. So how we see is really a process of interpretation. With the brain doing the interpreting, we do not necessarily see what we think we see. The brain will often alter, rearrange, or sometimes even eliminate raw visual information. We actually see what we expect to see and what we have learned to see. Vision is information processing, not information transmission. And that's an important thing to remember. So we we aren't like recording movies in our brain here. We're, you know, the brain is processing everything that we see. So a good example of this, in my workshops I like to convince people first and foremost that what that they don't see what they think they see. And a good example of this is something we do all the time and that's look in a mirror. So we see ourselves as life size in a mirror. But if you actually measure the image looking back at you, you'll see it's really only about one-half life-size. I call it the little shrunken wow. head. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's that's quite a difference. And it's really easy to do. You don't even need a ruler. Just hold your, you know, stretch your hand out, hold it up against your face, and then measure yeah. against the mirror. So that's what amazing. we need to understand is how what we think about something can actually impact what we see. And that's a good example of the whole head thing. We know ourselves to be life-size we tend to see ourselves as life-size. If you walk into your kitchen in the morning, for example, and you see some fruit, maybe a banana, an apple, and an orange, it is probably a choice of maybe something to eat for breakfast. But if, on the other hand, you take that fruit, you you arrange it on a table or set it up in your studio, maybe throw a light on it, it becomes something else. It's no longer an apple, an orange, and banana. It becomes a still life. And then the individual fruit becomes part of a larger scenario. And instead of individual objects, we now have a relationship of visual information 
based on shapes, color, value, and, of course, edges. This is visual information we don't necessarily need to see on a day-to-day -day basis. When you walk into that kitchen, you want to know if that stuff is ripe and if you can eat it, right? So we don't qualify some of that visual information that is actually always there. So we just really don't see much of this information unless we learn to look, look for it. What, mm -hmm. The way that we actually see, and a, mo a lot of people don't really grasp this concept, we actually tend to see in symbols. And those are learned symbols, and they're kind of what I call a simplified version of reality. And we've acquired all this symbol set information from childhood. So, for example, oranges are round, apples are red, you know, just good basic information. So on a day-to-day -day basis, we don't need to quantify the light or the shadow or exactly how the color is affected by the light. We also don't need to see what kind of edge that piece of fruit has. In fact, we don't usually even quantify edge information at all. So it really is a matter of whether or not we're seeing that information. We tend to see objects as solid. I kind of call it the chair effect. If you walk into a room with a chair in it, what do you need to know? You need to know what the shape and outline of that chair is because you're either going to walk around it or you're going to sit in it. If there's a glass on the table, you need to know what the outline of that glass is so you can grab a hold of it. We see a solid shape and we don't see the relationship of all the pieces of visual information. We don't need to quantify the type of edges we are seeing. Therefore, we don't see them. Edges are really not elusive. We just need to look for the information. Oops, I got... Yeah, Hold yeah. On a we have to here. look and know what we're looking for. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so you know, artists sometimes, you know, think that this is some kind of little magic thing going on out there, and it really isn't. An artist just needs to understand how important it is to question what he or she is seeing. If the information is not apparent, you know, if you don't see it at first glance, you just need to keep looking. And if you don't see it again, you need to keep looking more. It's basically like turning a switch on in your brain, saying, I want to see this information. So it takes a little effort, but it's, it's yeah. really not that difficult. Yeah. We, Carol, yeah, we just one of, train ourselves. Go ahead, Linda. No, I was just going to say, one of the things that, that, I was, that I find really useful to remind me about doing that is if you hold your hand out in front of you and you look at your hand, how soft everything is behind it, if I'm focusing on edges more or less, you know, how hard edge my hand right. is and then how soft the the background behind it is because I'm focused in that one area. So yeah, I, we can it, only focus on a really, a really small area at a time. So our eyes are constantly moving around. And what happens is that when we go to paint, that's totally unnatural. To, staring at one thing for, you know, too long is totally unnatural to how we actually see. So right. it, it helps to make a real concerted effort to move your eyes around on the canvas also and not stare. You don't want to take information out of context because we basically see in in context. We see the whole. And and so when we start painting and we start, you know, painting on one little area for too long, we that information is taken out of context and then it loses its relationship to everything else. Yeah, mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense. And then when you're staring at or looking at what you're painting, you look at one part and then the other part, and other things become different things come in focus. Yeah, and then keep in mind that when you when you look at something for a longer period of time, it actually changes. So if you stare at one thing, and and here again, if you lose the the context of the whole, 
the relationship of the pieces. The pieces themselves visually change. So they can change in value, they can change in color, you know, all kinds of weird things can happen here. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like eyes playing tricks on you. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, um, staying with the basics, can you tell us the different edge types and their appropriate uses in the painting? You know, I'm probably not a big fan of that limiting edge information to a list of types mm-hmm. and uses. It's kind of like verbal things that get in the way. Sometimes when you limit the possibilities, you don't always see the possibilities. Mm-hmm. So I think the more important information to remember is as compared to, because that's okay. one of the most important tools that our visual system uses. I mean, that's that's a basic part of how our our vision actually works, as compared to. And, of course, that's a, an obvious thing that painters use. So... I think as compared to. So it's it's fairly easy to observe obvious differences in visual information. For example, you know, like a strong light and a dark shadow. You know, we can see the obvious stuff. That's We're actually kind of wired to see the most obvious stuff. But it's a little bit more difficult then to observe and try and quantify information that is not as obvious. So unfortunately, most edge information kind of falls into this category. So I think it's okay. best to look for the most obvious, you know, the hardest edge and then the softest edge. And then it makes, then trying to figure out what's going on from there is just a matter of, of going with as compared to. But you always want to go back to your hard edge and your soft edge and compare your information. So like I said, you always use that that obvious stuff and you compare everything else to that. It becomes way easier to see everything. So, you okay. know, if we... If we well, it, it's a matter of if we become too dependent on what we think an edge is, okay, that the whole thinking and the, the visual stuff gets in the way here, we may, you know, we can overlook those changes that actually make the transition from one area to another. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like when you're looking at colors, you're painting and, and you see a million greens and, and you start looking at them and... Uh, this one's a little uh, more red. This one has a little more yellow. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, but you pair it You don't see it way. unless you compare. You know, if you start out with just the basic premise of green, you know, mm-hmm. and you've got green, it's not until you start comparing those changes. But like I tell my students, you always look for the obvious stuff, whether it's the obvious shape, the obvious value, the obvious color, and you compare, you know, opposites. Mm-hmm. So, you know, compare your lightest light to your darkest dark, you know. Compare your softest edge to your hardest edge. Mm-hmm. Right. Good. And then we also had a question from Jesse in the Ammo Painting Challenge group asking what your process is, which I think you've been describing, beginning to describe that, um, and how you decide to put what edge, what kind of edge where. Mm-hmm. Well, my... <laughs> Yeah, my basic plan is always to ask myself what defines the form. It's as simple as that. It's not, it's okay. the, you know, edges aren't really arbitrary. It's what defines the form. So would it be a change in value or color, or is it a change in the shape of the form, or often it's a change in the information around the form, just like, you know, we were talking just a while ago about the hand and everything being mm-hmm. blurry behind it. So it's a lot of times it's the information around the form that is, is determining what kind of edge we're seeing. So okay. um, 
you know, I do have a few things that I use with my students, and basically number one would be the rounder the form, the softer the edge. This is just basic dimensional information. So, we, you know, we're creating the illusion of three dimensions on a two-dimensional surface. And sometimes we need to remember we need to exaggerate some of that information a little bit. Okay. So for the farther away, the softer the edge. So we can look at that as just basic atmospheric information or perhaps, you know, focus information. But then mm -hmm. the third thing, and this is really important to remember, is what mm -hmm. I refer to as the artist trumps all. Where do you want to call it? Artist, okay. artist trumps all. You know, so if you've got the rounder the form, the softer the edge, you know, farther away, softer the edge, artist trumps all. Where do you want to call attention to something and where do you want to draw attention away from something? So, you know, another thing you can do, too, is to uh, pay attention to the uh, quality of edges created from side to side, the edges that would be opposite one another on a horizontal plane. So they should always have variety, and they should not necessarily be the same, because that's part of creating that illusion of dimensional space. Mm -hmm. So exactly opposite one another on a horizontal plane. You don't want the same quality of edge. It kind of defeats okay. the whole idea of dimensional. Can you tell we're taking notes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, in, in, the, in the big picture, I, in my own painting, I, I really try to quantify the edges as I see them. They really are not arbitrary. They define our three-dimensional reality. But it's just that I don't necessarily always try to recreate them, but I want to know what they are so I can use that information for interpretation. Mm-hmm. This is great information. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, okay, just, I just want to check your Blanche and Barbara. Do you have anything else to ask her before we jump into to the question that I'm going to ask? Or do you guys anything that she said so far? No, I think it's making a lot of questions for later. <laughs> Yeah, I was looking at a, a big uh, jug here near my desk, and I, I'm seeing the different edges on, uh, when the background is similar to the color of the object. The edge is, looks a lot softer, and then when the, the background color contrasts with it, the edge looks a lot harder. Mm -hmm. um, I guess those are the lost and found edges where it's about the same the same value from the background and the color of the object. but um. Well, you know, yeah, value is is one of the most obvious factors we deal with as painters. You know, I mean, that's just, mm -hmm. it's it's easier to see value than it is color for a lot of people. Um, it's easier to see value than it is to quantify edges. You know, and like I said before, noticing obvious differences is the primary component of our visual system. So we're more likely to see more contrasting value than anything else. But <clears throat> color can do the same thing, you know, kind of with with not I don't want to offend the all the colorists out there. However, I call seeing color an app because basically in the evolution of human vision, it uh value contrast and movement came first. They're primary to the visual system. Color kind of is is an add-on, if you will. But we have to recognize it's really important when we're painting. So, um, you know, I don't think a lot of times uh, artists consider how the information around something alters the perception of the edges. So you do have like inherent, you know, change in in um, 
edge depending on the the object you know is it is it a crease is it a cardboard box is it rounded you know and if and then even pay attention to the fact that something let's say like an orange for example even though it's round it's not like round like a circle you know it still has a variety of edge and that variety of edge comes from the light that modifies the form yeah, yeah. and then you get the information around it whatever's going on you know like uh-huh. i said you know it's not if you go to paint stuff like that it's not just it's not just a piece of fruit anymore it's part of a whole mm-hmm. it becomes something else mm-hmm. yeah, so we're painting a bunch of relationships we're exactly in, in yeah and, yeah and ultimately a lot of this is is what i call a mind game because we need to be really careful sometimes of um naming the thing if you will you know i love it when i get students that you know, figures and backgrounds always seem to be an issue. And I understand what's going on, and I understand what is the problem. But I always tell students if they if they've painted the whole head and they get to the end of the painting and then they go, "What do I do with the background?" They've got a problem because right from the beginning they set up a separation from what they already painted to information that they consider just to be around what they painted. You know, so you don't see it as a whole then. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Do you yeah. do you use edges to uh, move the eye through the painting? Well, or you know, obviously, sharp sharper edges are going to catch the eye. You know, um, mm-hmm. more you know, soft edges. It's like going into shadow. You know, it kind of disappears. So, yeah, soft edges are are going to catch the eye. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways to to you know kind of hold the eye in certain areas for a little bit longer and and obviously edges are one, but you also need to keep in mind that that's part of how we see because our, our we don't everything's not in focus. The brain is pretty much taking all kinds of these jumbled pieces of information and putting it together into a picture based on what you already know and what you expect to see. So when we look at something, we only see that small area that's actually in focus. So that's why a lot of times, you know, um, paintings that have too many edges don't look real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you have a um, a focal point in a painting, those edges would be more crisp than the ones on the periphery? Well, generally, sure. You know, um, you don't want your sharpest information going off the edges of the canvas, you know. Um, mm-hmm. It's just like there's certain things that I call are like tools in our tool belt, if you will. It's like a the lightest light and the darkest dark is going to hold the eye, too. So, you know, a combination of those factors can be used in any painting. But, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you don't want to overthink it. Is that, that's, the problem comes into painting because we, we're going from, you know, kind of right brain and left brain information, and we're going back and forth between handling different kinds of information. And that's a difficult thing to do. It's a difficult thing to consciously go back and forth, left brain, right brain, you know, and it's back and forth, back and forth. But you kind of, there are certain things about painting that facilitate that. But you need to always, like I say, you need to just make sure that this this is a little bit of a mind game here. So you want to stay as much as possible in that right brain mode, which is seeing relationships and it's seeing the whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used, to, I used to teach drawing at the university and, you know, and, and getting into right brain, left brain mode. And the symbolic system that you describe is so powerful that 
It's, yeah. You know, until yeah. you become conscious of it. And even when you are conscious of it, it can still slip in. And um, Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, yeah. I would have the students, i say, look, you you can just draw me a cat. Just just draw me a cat. There's no cat here. You can't see a cat. Just draw me a cat. And in general, almost everyone would draw the symbol of the cat they made up when they were six exactly. years old. Yeah. And it was just you know, all say, there. And then when they see the real yeah. cat and get into the you know the miracle of the specificity of a real cat and its angles and proportions and the value mm-hmm. of the light shadow, you know that was so fascinating to get into that. Um, and, and and then they start to see the difference about you know seeing the real visual information versus what we worked so hard to create when we were six, seven, eight years old, that whole symbolic system. Mm-hmm. And that symbol set of information lasts throughout our lives. And, you know, basically yeah. most people, and I'm not saying artists, but most people have probably the visual language IQ of a 10-year-old because by that time mm-hmm. you've pretty much learned everything you need to know about how to navigate the visual world. Yeah. And mm-hmm. people don't go beyond that because they don't need to. Yeah. And when they try, when they're teenagers, um, having raised three of them, when they really want to draw something that they see and get to that next level, there's often not a lot of help of how to get over that stumbling block of your symbol system to yeah, real yeah. seeing. And yeah. so then and they then get discouraged. A few criticisms and they just give up. <laughs> right. The tough thing. Yeah, they reach a point yeah. where what they want is real. Um, yeah. And then, you know, most people aren't capable of teaching that, so. Yeah, they're not, they don't know what you've even been describing. And um, it's, it's frustrating, it's heartbreaking to see, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On um, one of our previous shows, um, Carol, we had a, a guest say that edges are the soul of the painting. And, of course, you know, that gets into some very esoteric type of uh, relationships, if you will, like if you think about souls and yeah. uh, it's a very intangible thing and, you know, and, and of course, you know, you're starting off and you're saying this isn't that elusive. Um, so, mm-hmm. well, it's kind not, of clear, but I, I, what do you think? Yeah. I think this, the statement's probably pretty accurate, though, because of what we were talking about, how on a day-to-day basis we we don't qualify edges. You know, we we it's just is is visual information that is not necessary, okay? And so, because most people don't see edges, they can obviously have some kind of you know elusive quality. But um, right. you know, I think edges are really part of that seeing information that you know most people just don't notice. So, as artists, that's our job is to see the relationship of visual information and to paint those transitions. I, there's a there's a book that I read. Um, in fact, it's probably the absolutely best definition of ed- edges I've ever read, and this actually came from a gardening book, not an art book, which is mm. kind of phenomenal. But the book is called Gaia's Garden. It was written by Toby Hemingway, and I have to give her credit because I use this quote all the time. Anyway, in it she wrote, and I think this will totally answer your your question here, edges are where things happen. The edge is richer than what lies on either side. The decision to increase or decrease an edge depends on what lies on either side of the edge and what we want to see from it. Edges allow us to define spaces, see their boundaries, as well as what flows across them. They are places of transition and translation where matter and energy change speed or stop 
or often change into something else. Oh, that's beautiful. So that's, yeah, yeah that's what was the yeah. name of that book? It was by Toby <laughs> Gaia's, Hemingway? Yeah, it was Gaia's Garden, uh, Home, home okay. Scale Permaculture or something, I don't know, written by Toby Hemingway. Oh, that's beautiful. That's also true yeah. in ecology. Edges are where things happen. The edge of the pond, yeah. the shore yeah. of the pond, the edge of the ocean, the shoreline. Exactly. And Same so, thing. you know, obviously in gardening, you could be talking about the transitional area, let's say from, from green space in your backyard to the edges perhaps towards a fence where, you know, and that's where stuff happens, you know, yeah. where where you'll yeah. see the birds and things like that. So it's it's a, you know, it's just a great quote. I, I hand that's it out to beautiful. all my students. Yeah, that is. A really nice quote. So, can Carol, can you talk a little, Carolyn, I'm sorry, can you talk a little bit okay. about, um, you know, um, how edges convey mood um, and feeling in a painting, if we go into that, that realm a little bit? Probably not. I'm not. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a mood painter. You know. Okay. Um, I think my paintings create a mood because I use yeah, lots of found information. You know. But I don't. Say, I'm. I'm real careful around what I consider can be information that can go trite in a heartbeat. You know. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah. I mean, because <laughs> yeah, some of that stuff just gets a little too obvious. So I figure that you know a a, a good a good painting will have some kind of soul to it. You know, it'll have some kind of feeling, you know. So I don't really need to impose something on it, you know. And mm-hmm. It's more of what happens while you're painting versus saying I'm going to make it happen this way. Or kind of. It's just yeah. something that yeah. creates. I mean, it's just we can fall into trite little symbol patterns easily, and it, it can be the same thing mm-hmm. with mood, you know. Like I say, I, you know, over the years I continually... Um, you know, go back and forth, and I paint children, and and I look at some of the subject matter I've I've chosen to paint over the years, and I have to say what I've done, and I realize it now, is I've taken what could be really trite information, you know, like a head of a little kid, for example, and tried to make the the paint itself <clears throat> speak strongly enough that that what you're seeing is not trite information, you know, it's not necessarily like oh what a cute little kid. I mean, it could be a cute little kid, but you know, that's not. That's not the primary reason why I would paint it. So I'm probably not a good person to speak about mood in painting. <laughs> but but and I don't I don't know if that's true or not because like I said I look at your paintings and like you said it, it, they do create uh, yeah, a lot exactly. of and, and stuff. But that doesn't mean that that's where you. I, I think that probably from. does come from the lost and found edge information <clears throat> and lost right. and found information. Yeah. Okay. Well, Carolyn, and, and you know what? I, go ahead. I, I was just going to say I, I do appreciate that, you know, that honesty in your answer, Carolyn, because I'd rather hear you say <laughs> something like that than sit here and talk for twenty-five minutes about something that you don't believe in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, I was going to ask a question that Mariana Duford, who is in our Ammo Painting Challenge group, wanted us to ask. Um, it's about your theory on how color and value are used to make edges recede and stand out. And I think we touched on that. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, well, like I said, you know, um, value is one of the most obvious things that we see, okay, and especially mm-hmm. higher contrast. 
But I think what a lot of artists miss is the fact that you can uh, turn a form or soften an edge just by using a color change. You don't necessarily have to change the value, you know, and that's an important thing. I mean, it uh, in order to keep a value pattern, you know, fairly clean and not too cluttered up sometimes, you know, you, you need to remember that you can just uh, change that color tone just a little bit, and it will turn the form. It's just amazing how, you know, you think it, it would have to be a value. Well, it does not have to be a value at all. And, and on the same token, you can create a harder edge by using, you know, a little bit of contrasting color, and it's still the same value. Now, you can also lose edges, you know, or soften them by having the same value, for example, and then changing the color. So, you know, there's a lot of uses for just using color information and not always value information. And especially when you want to turn and transition something into something else, you know, and you don't want to value sometimes is, you know, isn't always the tool to use. And so color is color is really handy that way. But I think the one thing that a lot of artists miss, however, is that color creates a pattern just like value does. And it basically comes down to the science of color. And as artists, we can just sum it up pretty much as, you know, like warmer light, cooler shadow, cooler light, warmer shadow. You know, I mean, it's it's a science there. So in other words, if you're going to go from, let's say, a blue to a red, you're going to have to have some kind of transition in there. So it would be more likely you'd be going, let's say, ultramarine to alizarin instead of ultramarine and going to CAD. You know, it just yeah. it doesn't work yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. So I tell I tell my students just to think about a rainbow because that's pretty much what it is. That's the science of light, I mean, the science of color. So, you know, you need to think about those transitions in your painting. But it, it really is useful, and I use it quite a bit, where I just need to turn an edge just slightly, and uh, I'll just change the color temperature just a little bit. Keep the value the same, but, but change the color temperature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know you weren't prepared for me to ask this, but do you are there some books that you could recommend that uh are well, you know, a real obvious one, but I I know some people kind of maybe turn up their nose cuz they think it's a little too basic or something, but I tell all my students that drawing on the right side of their the brain should be in their mm-hmm. library. The books that well, it's a great book wrote because yeah. it gives you it just gives you a lot of good information. It's not like you have to step through and do the drawing exercises because basically what she was doing in there was teaching basic drawing to people who had no skill whatsoever. So it's not mm-hmm. artistic drawing. It's not interpretive drawing. But what she talks about is really valuable information. I think, you know, so that, I mean, that's a great one. I always tell people, you know, Richard Schmidt's a la prima is, you know, can't be beat for the yeah. wealth of information. Um I think if if you're into, you know, if anybody wants to touch on the science part of it at all, Vision and Art, The Biology of Seeing by Margaret Livingstone is... is You recommended that somewhere, something I read, and I went and I got it, and it's fabulous. It is a good book, yeah. I've had some students complain that it has too much science, but I, you know, I tell them, you don't have to read the whole thing. It has lots of pictures, you know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really not, good. You aren't going to get tested at the end of it, you know. So <laughs> yeah. you, you read the stuff that you find important. Yeah, yeah. You can skip over some of the scientific parts. Yeah. So it's called vision in art. Vision and art. And art. Vision and okay. art. Yeah, Margaret Livingstone. 
And then, you know, one that I, I turn to sometimes, and I, I just think it's a fun little book, and it's called The Annotated Mona Lisa. And it's basically, basically a crash course in art history. And I think a I lot of artists use that. Book. that. Uh-uh. Yeah, it's 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 kind. Of, I mean, you know, surprisingly, a lot of information is crammed into a little book. But um, nice. I think a lot of artists could use a refresher course, or most of us can use a refresher course on art history sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. if we if we don't know our history, we are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's right. Drawing on the right side of the brain, most of us probably have that. But if we could, uh, yeah. Reread it. Right to reread it. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. just reading Carl rereading Carlson's uh, book on landscape painting. Right. And, uh, yeah. I saw so much in there that I didn't see before, so it's always yeah. fun to go back. Yeah. And um, you know, Robert Henry's The Art Spirit. That's another classic yeah. for artists. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great. John Sloan also read a wrote a book that was pretty good too. I can't think of the title offhand, but that was, you know, John Sloan from the Ashcan School. Oh, Gist oh, of yeah. Art. That's what it was, yeah. Gist of Art, okay. Yeah, okay. and that, that's got interesting stuff in it. Well, we're over here making lists as fast as we can. I know. Yeah, there you go. Scribbling away. And, and there are lots of books out there on visual stuff, you know, some more basic ones like, uh, you know, I have one in my library called Basic Vision, an introduction to visual perception. There's another one called perception, you know, and they're fairly straightforward intros into visual perception for anyone who's more interested in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting when you. Well, that's great. Uh, Thank you. Go ahead, Linda. I, I was just thinking is, um, it's interesting when you start looking at all the different subjects that. Carolyn has listed here just with a list of books. I mean, you got into the study of vision, you know, how we see mm-hmm. science of that, you know, and, and, and then the, the art history part of it and all this. And it's like, how can you, I don't know, it's just a, a point. We don't have to get into it, but it's like, you know, how can you say that art education in schools is not important? I look at the different exactly. subjects that we well, the important thing to the important thing to remember about art education that a lot of people is that it changes the wiring in your brain. It changes your mm-hmm. perception. And that's the important thing. It's not just some little activity we get kids, you know, to do and give them paper plates to cut up or something. It, it's like learning another language, you know. There are, it's just important facets to brain wiring that are tapped into when we learn art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I found it really interesting, too. I was, I was having a conversation with um, Michael Pierce uh, out at Cal Lutheran, and um, he was making the comment that I think 11% of art purchases are happening in the in the U.S. And I think, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it, it was close to 50%, if not over 50%, of art purchases are now being made in China. Hmm, interesting. And it was just... You know, and where and I said, as, I, as Michael and I were talking, it was like, well, look where we are in the U.S. where we're teaching, we're not teaching kids to appreciate art. We're not, exactly. you know, so it's yeah. it's not surprising to me that that number in the U.S. is going down. They don't know how to appreciate that. No, they don't. They don't. And when people, the interesting thing that I've found over the years, when people do not understand visual language, they don't understand the spatial relationships and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, then they have a tendency to focus on the detail. 
And that mm-hmm. comes back to that whole symbol set of information because that's what we're we're comfortable with, and that's basically what we learned as children, you know. Make sure you draw all the little fingers and the little buttons and the little things like that. And that's where people's visual language kind of gets stuck. Right. Um, it's unfortunate. Yeah, it is. Now we're getting a little bit off off topic here, but um, that's okay because I think it's been a lot of uh, good information. So um, I think, Barbara, why don't you do have the next question? Yeah, we have, well, we have another question from the Painting Challenge group um, from Cruz. And so he was wondering, he says that painting is a mix of what you see and what you recreate, playing with color, values, light, and edges. And um, he says, I can imagine Carolyn is challenging herself all the time with creativity. And he wants you to tell us a few of your transition or edges exercises or challenges. Well, I don't... I don't know that I specifically use any exercises. I do, however, mm-hmm. a lot of times approach a painting with the idea of perhaps losing as many edges as I can while still uh-huh. holding the image together. I see that's the key, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I kind of, t- I tend to see chaos as, as just like a pattern that we don't recognize, you know. And oh, nice. Doing nice quote. Well, yeah, you know, truly it is. So, but I, you know, I'm really surprised a lot of times in in painting about how little object information is really necessary to still see form. You know, because we are we are programmed to notice value contrast, you know, we pay attention to things like line, obviously shape and color pattern and value pattern, you know, and yeah. all those things will move the eye around the canvas and create the illusion of, you know, dimensional form. So, <clears throat> there you know, the one thing I don't do, though, is is what I refer to as the coloring book approach. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of artists kind of learn this or they do it. With, and that's basically to draw outlines and proceed to fill them in, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, too many artists do that. And once you get a solid outline, you're just feeding right into left brain information. It's really difficult to, you know, kind of get out of that. In other words, you create a solid outline and then we have to work like crazy to try and, you know, modify and um, mitigate the edges, you know. That's where people get all caught up in the whole edge thing. I don't know what to do with it. Well, you should have identified the edges before you got that far. When you were drawing, you know, Mm -hmm. you should have observed the edges because that's what a good drawing is all about, you know. It's just that for some reason we get into paint and then it, it tends to complicate things for people. Um, so, you know, instead of working like crazy to try and, and change all those edges after creating solid form, I avoid creating solid form. I look for the information that, that says to me, you know, what creates this form. So, you know, it's here again, it's, it seems to make sense to, you know, look for the value pattern first, you know, light and dark. Try and identify your color pattern. And then work your shapes accordingly. So, you know, and like we mentioned before, too, a lot of that edge information is not just part of the an object itself. It's the information around it is part of the whole. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, that's, that's kind of how I approach it, that's for sure. So when you're starting a painting... Um, are you doing that? Are you are you kind of blocking in your your value pattern first? Yep. Uh huh. Exactly. Okay. I always go to, um, you know, identifying that that that. Well, of course, you know, we're working with uh, 
what I say is shadow defining light. So I'm working with the mm-hmm. dark to define my lights. I don't I don't paint the lights, you know, to begin okay. with. And, right. and what happens is whenever you start getting marks on your canvas that get in the way of seeing the shapes, what can, yeah. which can happen sometimes if you create too many outlines or you, you make marks in your light value areas, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it kind of confuses the whole idea of shape. So I try and stick with the visual information. So use the dark, follow through. You know, I see a dark here. Nice. And darks are always going to create some kind of pattern, you know, and then right. make the next dark and so forth and so on, you know, and <clears throat> hopefully, you know, you get enough stuff on there and all the pieces kind of come together and you don't have anything too far off. But like I tell people, you know, it's oil paint. You can change it. <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you're all, and another thing to keep in mind, too, in, in a lot of information, you're always better to overpaint or underpaint to to what's a perceived edge, okay? You know, instead of working up okay. to, like, what you think is a line, yeah. you know, okay. yeah. overpaint it or underpaint it. Make the decision which, you know, different information requires stuff. And then you come back with another brush stroke. See? Okay. And that modifies the edge, so you don't have to noodle all those edges. Nice. That makes a lot of sense. May I ask you a question about um, your brushwork? Um, sure. Your, uh, when I look at some of your, well, most of your paintings, uh, uh, it looks like you're using sort of a, a draw technique. Right. Um, what sort of brushes... And all do you use? Are you using larger brushes? And well, I use uh, primarily uh, bristle brushes, you know, flats. Mm-hmm. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of little short stubby brushes, as my students will attest, um, because I say they do nothing but scrub. I want a brush that I can make a variety of marks with, you know, without mm-hmm. too much thought. Mm-hmm. So I like flats. I, I throw like them away when they start to wear out. Okay. Yeah. When they start to get short, which they do, I pitch them. So I want to lengthen the brush. You know, and then, you know, I always keep, like, some kind of synthetic round that I kind of call either my noodle brush or my drawing brush. But, you know, sometimes you need to make little marks, you know. And sometimes you just kind of need to, you know, work your drawing a little bit or or work the form. So I always use some kind of synthetic round. But basically just the bristle brushes. And I do work dry. I don't don't, um, start out with – I don't use much medium. Mm -hmm. And um, I try and – keep the paint thin to begin with and build up. The idea is if you get that paint surface on your canvas wet and sloppy right at the beginning, you cannot modify your edges. Well, you can, but you kind of have to get into the whole let me let this stuff dry and then come back and, you know, yeah. do some modifying. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I try and keep, you know, that whole dry brush effect going, you know, and build up the paint from there. And that, that way I get a, a variety of edge right from the beginning. So in other words, I tell I tell my students to start your painting so it looks kind of like a charcoal drawing. Okay, uh-huh. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, nice. so it, it has that kind of visual effect, like a charcoal drawing, like you would do a charcoal drawing. Mm-hmm. That makes so you're awesome. starting. You're not using a lot of color when you start. You're starting in uh, grays. I start neutrals, and on my palette, I always start out with a. I mix up. A, gold ochre, which is kind of like a Rossi or else yellow ochre in my mineral violet, kind of gives me a nice neutral mid-value that I can either kind of warm up or cool off, if I, you know. And so I start there and then gradually, you know, work into adding the color. 
Great. So I start my mark making with that. You know, I'm always looking for something that's reasonably neutral, middle value, you know, works. You don't want to introduce, I don't like to start with a strong color because it's going to have something to do with, you know, it's going to read through on the stuff you come in on the top with, and so I just like to keep it neutral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that, and that doesn't matter if you're doing a, a portrait or a, nope. like the ones that we're showing, you have the horses and, and what you, you start making it doesn't matter what the subject You've got to start somewhere. You have to start creating what I call the you are here map. You know, I reference mm-hmm. this like the maps in the, the airport terminals, you know, you are here. So yeah. you need to get some yeah. marks on there because that's <laughs> the problem, you know, where I think a lot of people use contour drawing or outlines. It's that's their map, you know. But I would oh, rather yeah. use the the dark pattern, you know, and then in turn what we're seeing is light dark pattern for my you are here map. Instead okay. of outline. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's good. A good way good to think description. About it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it looks like your uh, the canvases are very uh, have a lot of texture to them. Well, reasonable amount. I usually use like Clausen sixty six, which is you know uh-huh. considered more uh, landscape canvas, I think, than portrait canvas. But I don't yeah. do typical portraits, so. Yeah. Well, they're just beautiful. Thank you. Um, one thing I want to want to touch on, Carolyn, was something that we talked about uh, before we went on the air around photo reference, and um, mm-hmm. I had made the comment to you, which was a misperception, uh, that you know you can tell when someone takes from a photograph because everything's hard edged and the photograph is all hard edged, and you said, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, and I said uh, that that is a misperception <laughs> that. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes in some of my workshops, I'd a- I actually have taken a couple photographs and projected them up. You know, after we go through a you know lecture on visual language, and then I I show different uh, images like sergeants and thorns and and step them through the edges on on that material. But I've mm-hmm. used photographs also to put up on the screen so I can step them through the variety of edges on a photograph. And here again, it's just something that we obviously don't see because we don't look for it, but it is always there. We lose some of that depth perception, but the edges are always there. And basically because edges are determined by what? Number one thing is form, you know, the rounder the form, that kind of thing, okay? And then also the quality of the light, okay? And then, you know, it can be what the color is doing, but they're always, they're there. They're there in photographs, and if you don't see them, blow the photograph up and look again. Mm-hmm. It's all there to be seen, just not looking in the right way. Exactly. We we just we aren't seeing them because number one, we seem to have it in our heads that that photos are all hard edged, you know. So it's that mm-hmm. misperception which messes up with our seeing, and so. Th- so we actually don't go looking for it, you know. And you might look at a photograph and you go, "Oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. This looks all." So you got to look again, you know. Yes. You have to look again, and you'll see the variety of edge. Yeah, I, I think that all goes back to our coloring book mentality. We all learn yeah, that's that. That's exactly what we, it is. We like all those uh, crisp edges on everything to uh, as our roadmap until we can start well, thinking like about it in a course. different way. That's how we see. See, that is the problem. That is actually how we see. We we see mm-hmm. those. We see them as hard edges, and they aren't. 
Mm-hmm. But like yeah. I said, it's, it's it's a process of just kind of turning that switch on in your brain and saying, going, okay, no, I'm going to look for this. I'm going to find it, you know. And the other thing that artists can do too is to, you know, we've got great examples throughout art history, and I like to use uh, Sargent and Zorn as examples because they um, did some nice creative edge work. Um, mm-hmm. I also use fashion, you know, as examples. Mm-hmm. But um, if you take some of the work, it can be like in, in art books that you have at home, and take it out of context or either, or maybe take a, a, a picture of, you know, an image in the book and then blow up certain sections of it just a little bit and then start comparing edges from side to side because that's the best way to do it as compared to. So go on one side of the form where maybe the light is, opposite side, you know, and and look at to see how they handled edges. And there's different ways of handling edges, but they're they're good examples. Mhm. Mhm. That's yeah. a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, and that was that yeah. was one of our questions. <laughs> great. But yeah, that was one of the questions we were going to talk about is is kind of how edges are throughout history and and have they changed because are mm. we seeing different today versus uh in the past well, and uh, you know, there there have been changes, but, you know, are things different today? I think we're a lot harder edged today, to tell the truth. You know, I tend, yeah. to, I tend to see this as a two-dimensional world going on here, and it's kind of reflected in a lot of the art. But, you know, if you go back in time, I mean, the Renaissance, I mean, the 1500s, for crying out loud, is when they did the big breakthrough in, in um, light and shadow, perspective, mm-hmm. Um, modeling form with edges, you know, turning the form in dimensional space so the figures act, actually look real. And then we went mm-hmm. for like hundreds of years just with variations of that information. You know, and then you get up, I mean, you've got, you know, Sargent and Zorn and all those guys. Soroya is another good one to study. Fashion obviously mm-hmm. came later, so we've got a different kind of thing going on there. But then you've got the Impressionists, you know. That was over 100 right. years ago. Mm-hmm. And you talk about expression and losing information, hello, you know. Right. Absolutely. So it's all out there. Like I said, if we don't know our history, we are doomed to repeat it. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's just like you said, just picking up a book and and opening up any of the books that you have in your library of past masters or or past Mm -hmm. work and just sitting there studying that is not time wasted. It's a good investment. No, but like I said, sometimes you need to take the information out of context. Like, say, right. if you're looking at a sergeant full figure thing, you know, like the whole figure, no, you need to find a, a close-up yeah. of it to actually quantify the edges, for example. Mm-hmm. Get out that magnifying glass and just look at one little area. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might blur it a little bit more than, than we need. But yeah, maybe. Carolyn, I'm I'm trying to make a list for myself of different ways to manipulate edges. We've talked about color, uh, value, and then just manipulating the paint to make a softer edge or a crisp edge. You want to underpaint or overpaint? Overpaint. Underpaint or overpaint an edge, you know, never up to. Yeah. I think that's a good sound way. But, you know, don't, like I said, it's not a matter of trying to learn a list of things you should do in your painting. It really isn't. It's it's basically about trusting yourself to look at information and try and figure out what's going on. And sometimes some of the stuff is good to know because it tells you where to look, you know, for example. You know, so mm-hmm. you're looking at something kind of 
you know, hey, I don't see it. Well, that's why studying some of the other, you know, artists can be a good thing because then you know kind of know where to look. But there, the the other thing that people miss is there's always a variety of edge in the smallest part of a form. It's not, let's say, like we take an orange and we just go that that orange is all round. No, it's still going to have a variety of edge all the way around. Mm-hmm. You know, edge change, edge change, edge change, edge even on an orange. Mm-hmm. So um, you just have to look for the information. Don't get too caught up in thinking, oh, no, you know, what do I have to do here? Well, just look to see what's going on. Paint it, even if it doesn't to, look right, figure yeah. out why, you know. Yeah, as I was saying, you, you don't have to name it necessarily, name it an edge, what type of edge it is, just yeah. what's going on with that form and color and value. and Exactly. It gets too confusing, you know, too much yeah. stuff, yeah. too confusing. Keep yeah, it to the base. It's basics. all about seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Well, we're uh, we're coming up on the believe it or not last thirty minutes of the show. So why don't we go to? I want to give Carol Carolyn a um, opportunity to talk about what's coming up for her as well. So, um, Blanche, uh, your last question that you might have for Carolyn. Uh, let's see. As far as color. We were talking about color and turning forms. Uh, uh-huh. uh, as a form turns away, it would ter- tend to become cooler. Well, it depends Correct. on the kind of light you have. Let's say, you know, some artists like to work with. Um, let's talk about faces, for example. As some artists like or figures. Some artists like to work with cool light, and then they have warmer shadow. My preference, most of the time, is usually for warmer light and cooler shadow. So let's say you've got a forehead shape, okay? And and mm-hmm. basically that forehead shape is going to be kind of rectangular probably. Um, and as it gets towards the edge, you know, the outside edge on that forehead shape, you know that it has to go somewhere, right? It's not like a, you know, I could tell people, it's not a coloring book. It's not like you cut this out of a piece of paper, you know. That yeah. edge has to go somewhere. So let's say the the light on the forehead is a little warmer, then right at the edge, you could turn it perhaps towards a little of uh, the violet or a little viridian, you know, a little green. Mm-hmm. But still maintain the same value if that's what you need, if you need the same value going all the way across. So yeah. you could just transition that color then just a little bit, over, and that will turn the edge. It's just kind of amazing how that works, but it does. Mm-hmm. And say you had a uh, cool light, and would it work the same way? Oh, yeah, it it works the same way. It doesn't make any difference, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but you just have to be careful with the, the warm stuff going on there because if you, you get it too warm, it can pop forward, you know. So that's where we talk about color powder, you know. I mean, because there's such a thing as, you know, like warms that kind of go better with cools. Than, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Barbara? Yeah, I would just love to see me paint now. I'd love to see um, like the, the viscosity of the paint as you're painting. So if you're starting at the beginning and you think of it more as a charcoal drawing, um, right. and then as you as you build that up and you're not using much medium, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the the paint viscosity. Well, i I use a, a I use Holbein paints, which are fairly creamy. 
You know, a lot of mm-hmm. it depends on what kind of paint you're using, too. You know, people yeah. need to be aware of the difference in materials. So my paints are fairly creamy. They're fairly evenly creamy. I don't end up with colors that are stiff, for example, that actually, you know, need something. Now, when I start out, if I need to get brush flow, for example, on, you yeah. know, like a, something, then I'll just use a little of my, you know, Gamsol right. for that. Um, but it's just, yeah, I'm just using the paint and... um I'm just building it up, and I, I just find okay. it valuable to uh, start with the information that, like I said, that I think is important. That's going to be the value. and then, But at the same time, you need to identify the color pattern, you know, at the beginning. Where's your light coming mm-hmm. from? Is it a warmer light or a cooler light? And mm-hmm. then, you know, as as you start establishing the value, so you have enough information on that canvas, it should start to look, bear a relationship to what it is that you're painting, you know, should yeah. have some kind of relationship. Then I'll start, you know, working my way into color. Um, okay. I don't want to get too heavy in um, darker values without getting color tone, you know, because mm-hmm. that's not going to help any. So, and then, you know, if it's a larger painting or something like that, you know, chances are I'm going to have to go to some medium somewhere. But, right. um, or, you know, I'll use medium if I have to go back into a painting, for example. But by and large, no, I stay away from it. I, I okay. you know, I'm able to control my edges better. Nice. Okay. Thank you. Especially, yeah, I've gotten to see Carolyn Payne a couple times now. Once, once out weekend with the Masters, um, when she was holding some workshops out there, and I also saw her painting with CW at the American Impressionist Society meeting back in November, and it, it is a real treat to watch Carolyn paint. So, um, if you get the opportunity, don't. Don't pass it by. Go and, and, and see your paint. I, I enjoyed it both times, Carolyn. So Thanks. you may have not known that. that I was back there because <laughs> I was sneaking in and out. <laughs> it was fun, and it, it's real. What was I thought was really a lot of fun too is um, when CW was painting next to you at the American Impressionist Society, and it was just so much fun to see him turn and ask you questions. Yeah, well, <laughs> well the last place we were at, we were just down in Texas. We were both teaching workshops at the same time. And this isn't true, but this is what he told his students. He was describing our our doing that dual demonstration there um, and, you know, painting the same model. And he, he told his students, he says, yeah, he says, I just set up behind Carolyn and I just copied her. Whatever she put, I didn't even look at the model. Whatever she put down, I just copied it. <laughs> Oh, he wasn't behind you. You're right. He was, he was I know he wasn't you. there, but you know he made a good story well, out of it anyway. He's also yeah, quoted you several times as saying, "Show me something I haven't seen before." Exactly. Yeah. 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 I've seen that. Show me something I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that it's a lot of fun. So, so what do you have coming up? Um, workshops, um, shows. Well, n- next weekend, pre to West show in Oklahoma City. Um, okay. I think it's next weekend, something like that. And then um, I'll be doing a workshop in Jackson, Wyoming in June. And then in the fall, there's the American Impressionist Society show, and um, I'll be teaching a workshop in Easton, Maryland in the fall. So other than that, it's just, you know, normal gallery, whatever stuff. Okay. And um, hopefully a lot of paintings for you in the meantime, right? Well, that would probably be a good thing, yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would be a good thing. Yeah. Darn, right? Yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> well, again, yeah, I've just um, kind of been in a whole thing of painting and throwing, painting and throwing, painting and throwing. Mm. I know, as, throwing. as my my son, 
yeah, throwing them away. You know, I just it's I don't know. I just kind of well, I'm always looking for something just a little different. As my son told me though, here a few weeks ago, I was talking to him on the phone. He says, "What are you up to?" He says, "I haven't talked to you in a while." And I said, oh, I've just been struggling with my painting. I just don't like anything I do." There's this long pause on the other end of the phone, and finally he goes, "What? You haven't figured out how to do it yet?" <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the ones that that love you the most would always hurt you, right, Carolyn? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, uh, we have really appreciated um, you being on the show. Is there um, anything that we may have missed that you want to tell us um, that we maybe mm. haven't asked? I know that leaves like a wide expanse of <laughs> topics. But, stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I really, I guess, would just like to um, emphasize that, that people really need, you know, I, we've always heard that, you know, painting's about seeing. I just don't think that a lot of people have really understood how important that actually is. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> I, I know I run into this a lot of times in workshops where, you know, I'll say now, do you see that color in the shadow, you know, for example? And they'll go, no. <laughs> so then we have to step through obvious information first, and then I'll have them look at that shadow again. And then they'll usually go, oh, now I see it. And it's the same thing with edge information. I'll say, what do you see at the top of the head? Well, it's just the top of the head. It's, you know, kind of like a line. No. Okay, now let's compare. Let's go all the way around, you know, from side all the way up over the top, down the other side, if you will, but, you know, compare one side to the next, and let's look at the difference in the edges. And it's only then when people actually see the information. So, right. like I said, this, the edge information is not arbitrary. It really, it's, it's all there. It defines our three-dimensional reality. It's really critical. And so, if you don't see it, you just need to keep looking. You really do. You need to force yourself to look and look again, and if you still can't figure it out, then drag out some of your art books and, and try and figure out what people were, you know, were seeing and how they handled the information. Mm-hmm. Great advice. So so we're, um, I guess we're going to say goodbye here and, and thank you again um, for being on on the show. And, oh, I appreciate uh, it. Yeah, so we'd, we'd love to have you on again sometime. So if there's something that comes up in your workshop and, and you want to come on the air and talk with us about it, you know, feel free to drop me a line or give me a call. Yeah, um, I think we should just uh, turn it back to your listeners, and if there's anything specific that they think would make a good show, maybe that's where it needs to go. That that would be great, too, and um, they can do that yeah. through the, the painting challenge or um, they can drop me an email uh, at my at my website or, um, Carolyn, I know that you have a contact, I think, uh, contact yeah, me. Yeah, it's on my website. Your website so, as well. So yep, yeah, so yep. either way, that that would absolutely be most welcome to hear from our listeners yep. on that. So um, so with that, I'm going to say thanks again. We appreciate your time, and you're very welcome. Uh, thank you again. Yeah, thank you to our listeners for tuning in too. We've had uh, over 106,000 listens since we started the program um, back in March of last year. So. Uh, really excited that we have that many folks. And then uh, in June, again, we have Michael Harding coming up. So until next time, everybody have a, a great day and, and keep painting. And Blanche and Barbara, thank you again for joining us too. So thanks, everyone. Have a good night.
Thank you. Yes, thanks, Bye. everyone. Thanks, Carolyn. That was very inspiring. You're yeah, welcome. that was. Thank you.